We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw, we go tit for tat, we have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. to the Moose and Runes podcast. Joining me now, Matt Rooney. Matt, we're going to dive into episode three here. How was your weekend, pal? Well, I'm not sure if you saw last night, but there was a nice little video that went viral of uh, one Mitchell Trubisky. Oh, yeah? Put, putting the football through the tire from about 30 yards away. So Just classic, bears are, bears are classic skills assessment there. Yeah. If you can't put it through the tire, how are you going to beat these defenses, right? Exactly. So yeah. I think you're on my side when I say that Bears are back. One foot in front of the other, and it starts with a tire swing. That's that's, that's going to be. It's got to start somewhere, Joe. It, well, Matt, we're going to we're going to get uh, we're going to touch on some bears later on in the show, but we got a full slate here. We're going to kick things off with some baseball talk, Sox Cubs. Uh, we got a little fight talk with some Mayweather McGregor NBA draft lottery. Our thoughts: Are you interested? Is it kind of a non-event? That sort of thing. And we got a couple new segments we want to introduce today for the fans out there. Again. Thank you for tuning in to the Moose and Runes podcast. We appreciate you guys. Send us all your questions to at Moose and Runes, and we'll be sure to hit them during the mailbag portion of the podcast. But we're going to dive right into it here with some Chicago White Sox talk. I think that was kind of the biggest highlight of the week. Uh, if we're talking about headlines, uh, the Sox just continue to do this rebuild at a breakneck speed, Matt. Before we get into the actual like baseball on the field, what this means for the White Sox, can, can we establish if we're going to pronounce it Robert or Robert? I like to think Robert just for, like, an ethnic splash. I've, I've been confirmed from a couple people that it is indeed Robert, but... It's Robert? It's, it is, but I kind of like Robert. Okay, here's what we do. How's, how's Chuck? How's Garfine pronouncing it? I have heard, I've heard Robert. Robert? I'm going Robert, then. But it's Robert just sounds so much, you know... Like you said, it has that ethnic flair to it. If you want Robert, there's got to be an accent in there somewhere, like a tilde, something like that. So I'm going to go Robert, you go whatever you like. Matt. Okay, I'll put, I'm going to put an accent over the uh, the E. Okay. I'm call him Robert on my end. Robert, but, gotcha. Uh, to, to the actual on the field stuff, uh, just it, it's another massive step in the right direction for the rebuild. I mean, I think I saw a tweet the other day that said nine out of the ten top prospects in the White Sox system were not in the system last year. So it's just another example of Rick Hahn really going all in on this rebuild. Yeah, and, it, you know, to look at the numbers a little bit, the, the Sox, after last season, they were ranked by Baseball America as the 23rd best organization in terms of a farm system. And uh, coming into the season, just with those prior moves, they were ranked fifth by Baseball America. you got to think at the end of the year, if they kind of capitalize on this Quintana move also, they got to be one or two in terms of Baseball America rankings. And you can only put so much stock into that, but it is a sign that you are moving in the right direction again. But this this Luis Robert guy, I obviously, I don't know how much you know about him. I don't know much about him. I know that he's the newest name, kind of, he was that big splash Cuban guy that you get every year. And for the Sox to be in that conversation and then to capitalize and sign him for what looks like it's going to be a $25 million contract to get him over here. Um, it, it's just exciting, again, from from the Sox standpoint, that they are going about this um, and building from the bottom up. Yeah, you know, it was, it was one of those things, you know, Saturday, I think Friday night is when uh, 
those reports were coming out that saying, you know, he's, he's going to sign soon. He's going to sign, you know, tomorrow with either, you know, the, the Sox or the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And all day Saturday, kind of when I kept checking Twitter, things were saying it's pointing towards the Sox, you know, leaning towards the Sox. And I just kind of expected the Cardinals to swoop in and, and kind of grab them from out of out of the Sox grass. Just do some Cardinals exactly. stuff. It would have been yeah. very Cardinals, and I couldn't have even been that mad if he because it, it, that wouldn't have been a bad spot for him to land at all. But and then, then obviously he signs with the Sox, and the reports start coming out that he actually took less money from the White Sox. That's so clearly, you know, Rick Hahn is doing something right. And if you're in St. Louis right now, I can't imagine you being a very, uh, very happy baseball fan finding out that uh, this this new young star took less money to go play for the White Sox. Yeah, and, and if we're going to kind of do a thing, we're going to forecast, and we're going to look forward here, it would be most likely, let's call it two years in the organization oh, yeah. before a call-up. So a 2019 call-up at the earliest. So you're looking at 2019, if all goes well, you got Robert Moncada and Abreu. And I don't know if we talk enough about just how important it is to have a comfortable and a positive energy in a clubhouse. And, and when you get a lot of these guys that come from the same country, that does that. That kind of establishes it and makes it easier for a guy to defect and come to a new land and to feel comfortable because, you know, he's got people to look up to that have kind of already gone through the same process in a Jose Abreu and hopefully a Moncada. Yeah, you know, and it, it's a clear example of you know, the White Sox have, been there before and done that with players like this and I, I think from what I saw that one of the, their big pitch was you know video presentation to uh, to Luis and part of that was having a lot of these Cuban players from their organization basically give him a pitch and I, I can't imagine St. Louis if they had any you know had nearly as many solid examples of former White Sox from Cuba yeah. coming here and, and succeeding here and Having yeah, nothing I mean, but great Cuban, things to say about how they're treated by the organization. The Cuban history on the South Side is it's rich and deep. I mean, you think about Alexi at short. You go all the way back to Minnie Minoso. Yeah. Like there are, there are. It's a long list of yeah. White Sox that kind of come from his native country, and honestly, those are the factories now. And it's a shame, and it's a whole nother conversation. But uh, you know, the American baseball youth system maybe isn't putting the kids in the same position that some of these other Dominican countries and Cuban countries are. And um, what are they, they're calling them the, uh, the training. Um, they make it sound like a school. What, <laughs> how are you referring to these things as? But, but baseball is the focus. Fine with me. <laughs> if they keep coming over here and succeeding. Uh, but I think one thing, going back to a little bit more what it means for the White Sox and the actual on-the-field product, I do think this probably means Jose Abreu sticking around. Yeah. Especially, at least through the next you know two, three, four years when these guys start coming up and they, they kind of do need to have that mentor. Absolutely. Here. And, and when you get into kind of, what would that put them at? Almost, I think, year six, 2019, something like that, yeah. somewhere around there. You start moving him into the DH role that he kind of seemed predestined to as it was. Yeah, he should probably be there now, but I think he wants to play first. But at that point, yeah, you're probably sliding him into your DH role. Yeah, so some exciting stuff on the south side and Cubans, Cubans, Jerry, and you can never, you can never have too many Cubans. <laughs> that's, I think that's on a plaque somewhere in Wisconsin. <laughs> I really well, do. Well, uh, Luis Robert or Robert, we'll kind of dig, we'll dig deeper into that as as the time comes and. We are getting to the point where, you know, you've got to temper 
expectation a little bit. When when moves keep happening, what seems almost week to week here with the rebuild, you got to temper expectations because the Cubs paid thirty million to get uh, Georgie over here to get Soler over here. Yeah. And not to say that that was a bust or that it fizzled, but you know it just turned into a piece that you moved. It didn't exactly. It didn't turn out to be you know four hitter on a World Series team. Exactly. So so many things can. Um, Many things can come out of situations like this, but definitely exciting to see things moving faster than, than you think they would. You know, it's it's a little bit not annoying, but it's it's tough because I'm getting so excited over these these moves, but I'm, you're not really going to see them start paying off till you know 2019. Sure, some guys will start you know making their way up maybe end of this year, starting next, but probably not seeing this team ready to compete for that division title until next year. Yep. So some time still add add a little time to the mixture and uh, things. Things should, uh, but I want it now. You want it now? I want. I want the Sox to be good now. Well, you could have them rush it and go sign like some big name over the hill free agent and be back where we were three years ago. Hey, say what you want about that. Those say, the the signings were fun when they happened. And they always <laughs> that sucked. day. All right, Matt. We're gonna transition to the north side here. Uh, we're talking about a little bit of Cubs action. Back maybe getting the wheels turning in the right direction. Also for the last five, they've taken a. Uh, Back over 500, two games over right now. And yesterday kind of looked like uh, what might be a, a breakout day for the Cubbies. Uh, Arietta looking strong again, had a nice outing. And Chris Bryant swinging out of his shoes, looking like a reigning MVP. So uh, Cubs jumping off the paper, if you will, a little bit. Yeah, you know, a fun stat with Chris Bryant I saw yesterday when I was uh, at work at Comcast, but I was putting together a graphic that said, in the last two seasons, on days when Arietta has started, Bryant's hitting. I think it's something like four twenty-five, has an OPS of like four ninety-five. So he likes so to help so his when, guy out. So when Jake's starting, <laughs> Bryant's getting on base every other at bat. It's got to be a, a good Christmas gift coming Bryant's way. Yeah, on that. Seriously, but the uh, like you said, Cubs really broke out yesterday. I'm trying to count the home runs. I think it's four or five, but. Zobrist uh, shifted up to the top of the order there, and they kind of slid uh, slid Schwarber down to two, and Zobrist led off the game with the home run, kind of started things on the right track. But, yeah, the, the weather's warming up a little bit. Those guys might all start to be getting out of that team-wide slump that they were in. I think you might start seeing those bats wake up a little bit for good. And i got to give you a little bit of credit here, Matt. You, you were calling for last week that switch up at the top of the order. So uh-huh. I don't know if we have the sting built in yet, but we need a Mastradamus swing. Sting. Maybe I'll just kind of – or we can just get Theo on the phone, tell him that that was my idea. Okay, we might get you a front office gig then. Yeah, I think that's only fair. <laughs> um, we're also seeing uh, kind of the, the Ian Happ experiment right now, and um, I don't know what to make of it. It's He looks great, but I think this is still a temporary thing, right? You know, I think, I, I, I do think it's temporary, but at the same time, I mean, if he's hitting 346 right now. If he does that for two more weeks, how are you going to justify sending him down? I, I don't. Yeah, really, it, his defense. It's not like I know Amora plays a great center field. I don't think Cap plays a bad center field or center field at all either, though. Well, I heard Joe talking about it yesterday in the pregame, and he really likes the flexibility that it gives him. It, it, it forces Joe's hand maybe to have to move Schwarbs to the other side in the outfield and kind of get more creative with his lineup. And you know. The, the, the evil genius that Joe Madden is, anytime that you put him in a situation where he's got to move guys around, sometimes that ignites a team. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see with Hayward coming back into the lineup yesterday off the deal, that decision's probably going to have to come pretty soon, isn't it? Yeah. Because I don't and, think you're going to carry that many outfielders and have a, that good of a player on your bench all day. You know, 
not all the one all week. The one thing that stands out to me a little bit here is just the transparency that the Cubs front office has kind of operated with throughout this entire process. You usually know about a guy when he comes up, if he's going back down, uh, when a guy's going to get sent down because he needs a little work. They've always been very open about that, and I don't think we've heard from them on what the plan is here with Hap. That's the only thing that kind of stands out. Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure there is much of a plan. I truly believe they might kind of just be going with the flow and letting him do whatever he's going to do. And if he's going to sink, if he's going to sink, they'll send him back down. But if he swims and, and, you know, stays up and keeps hitting over 300, I think you probably see him in that lineup. If not traded and sold high for a, for a young control. More. Yeah. And we can't forget as Chicago baseball fans, many years in the past, the season was over by now. So it's good to be uh, still talking baseball with June approaching. Yeah. And I, I remember saying last summer, uh, when when the Sox were also, you know, I think they started out with 23 and 10, how, how what a fun summer baseball it was going to be. And then just completely being you know, proven wrong by how bad the Sox were. But this summer should actually be really fun because the Cubs aren't going anywhere. And, you know, the White Sox, well, they're not probably not going to be competing for anything. It's going to be fun to see their young talent start to get showcased, some more moves that they're going to make, and see if they can't get, you know, one or two of these young guys up and at least give us a taste of what might be uh, coming in the future. All right, Matt, let's take things to the ring, the octagon, the mat, whatever. whatever the ring to go. The ring to go? It's going to be held in a ring to go. I that's, like that. We're going. We, might have to, we might have to get out in front of that thing and make some money on this. Pen, um, well, well, it sounds like it's going to be held in a boxing ring, and most importantly, it sounds like it's going to go down. We're talking Mayweather-McGregor. Uh, what? What started out as just a fun conversation between friends, you know, around the table, around the poker table, sitting on the couches. Sounds like it's going to come to fruition here, and it's going to be quite possibly the biggest pay-per-view card in the history of fight sports, Matt. Uh, you know, what's your kind of where's your temperature at going into this one? Matt, I, I think we both know how it's going to end. Um, but that said, I don't think I'm going to be able to not buy it. I, yeah, I think it's going to be a must-see fight. I think Mayweather. I'm not sure how quickly it'll happen because Mayweather's not really, you know, the most offensive fighter. Kind of sits back and plays great defense. But I'm going to have to tune in and watch it just in case something insane happens. And there is that potential with Conor McGregor. And I think the the most interesting part of this it's going to be a sitcom leading up to it because usually you have the Mayweather side and he's got you know he's the biggest mouth in sports and he's John, but. You now have a guy who can match him in that vein. So these, however it's going to be done, whether it's going to be done on Showtime or if they're going to go some other direction with this, that kind of all access is going to be is going to be can't miss television as well. It's going to be I don't know if it's going to be an interesting fight. I think that you know, like we said, it's going to be a straight up boxing match, and that's that's Floyd's jungle. You're coming into Floyd's ring, and um, it might get ugly, and it might just be a defensive match that we've seen out of Floyd for the last 10 years. The last seven Mayweather fights have been decided on points, and I don't know why this one would be any different. Uh, he's not going to go in there trying to throw haymakers because the only way McGregor's going to come out of there with a win is with a second, third, fourth round knockout. Because, you know, everyone in, in fight sports and in the MMA says that, you know, McGregor's got that touch of death, that he gets you on the, he touches you on the chin and you go down. But, uh, I don't think Floyd's gonna gonna be close enough for him to even touch him on the chin. So no, as, as, as tempting as it might be for Floyd to go for that knockout early, just to kind of see smart. that ego a little bit, show people up. He's actually a really, really smart fighter and a smart athlete. He's not gonna 
he might throw a big one, try, you know, try and land a big one early on, you know, the first minute or two of the first round. But I think after that, you're going to just kind of see him lay back and not embarrass Connor, but embarrass Connor a little bit. You make a good point there, Matt, because when you talk about Floyd Mayweather, you're talking about one of the most intelligent businessmen in sports. This is not a fight he's taking to further his legacy. He doesn't need to be 50-0. and 0. He's already, you know, come out and said that he's retired. So he'd be coming out of retirement for a check is what he's coming out for. Uh, of course the, the McGregor side's done. There's nothing to lose here for Conor McGregor, and he's going to make more money in one day than he's made in his entire career. Conor McGregor's career earnings in the octagon, $9.5 million. That's Floyd, it. Mayweather's, Floyd Mayweather's career earnings in the ring, over $700 million. So this is a life-changing moment for Conor McGregor, whether or not he gets touched up or not. He's probably going to clear close to $75 million for this pay-per-view card. Now, Floyd's probably going to clear much more than that, and Floyd's probably going to take food and beverage home too. That's what this is for Floyd. This is a check for Floyd. So that's the only thing that makes me think that maybe this fight's interesting because Floyd comes into it with a complacency we haven't seen before. I don't know why he would. I don't think he would. He's an absolute murderer once you get him into fight mode and he's training. I've watched all of those you know, HBO, yeah. behind-the-scenes, Showtime, all-accesses. And that's what's going to be most interesting about this fight to me is the build-up. Because usually, you know, you got the, the Mayweather side and then whoever else he's fighting. And the Mayweather side is that big, brash, loudmouth persona. And the other side is the, you know, a little bit more contrite, I just want to fight, thank you for this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this instance, this is two mouths. And this is going to be fun because there's going to be some John leading up to this fight. The fight itself, I think, will fall face flat, and we'll get another 12-round decision that goes Mayweather's way. Yeah, I'm glad you did mention, though, that once Mayweather kind of gets into the ring, he's going to start taking it seriously. Because while you said, you know, he's a businessman and you know he's one of the best businessmen in sports, he's also not in the business of losing. He didn't build this brand by no. losing. And while you know setting that 50-0 and record might not be tops on his list. 50 and 0 looks a hell of a lot better than 49 and 1 for his brand. Yeah, that, that one would be the only thing that hurts him. That's why he's got to know that this is a win before he even starts training, which I think he does. I mean, oh, exactly. But I, I'm just saying, I don't think he's going to take you, you. I'm glad you kind of covered and said once he gets into that ring, yeah. I don't think it's going to be a good fight. Because I don't oh, think no, he's no, going to no. take this fight lightly. I think he might, in the back of his head, know it might be a little bit easier than, than past fights. But at the same time, he's yeah, not in the business of losing. When you're talking about elite athletes in any sport, there's a switch there. And he's 40 years old. He's been out of the sport for two years, but he knows exactly what it takes to get ready for a fight. The last time he lost, I don't know what year it was, but it was in the Olympics when he took bronze in the Olympics and got robbed out of a decision in the semifinals in the Olympics. That was when he was a child. This Mm -hmm. man has been doing nothing but winning for the last two, two and a half decades. Yeah. You know, Joe, I'm glad you touched on it. The, I think the most entertaining part of this entire process is going to be the build because, like you said, there, there's finally another mouth, mouth excuse me, match Mayweather's. And I don't think we've ever seen that before. And while you said the fight might kind of fall flat a little bit, this build up, I think, is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. And part of it will be those two kind of playing the characters that they've built up throughout their entire career, which is what has made them such a big draw. But either way, it's going to be some must, must eh, excuse me, some must see TV moments, I think, throughout the way. Yeah, there, there's going to be some. Some absolute gems in there. But I think that it also needs to be said that I know that this is going to be a boxing match and it's going to be 
regulated by whatever boxing governing bodies there are, and it's going to be, the rules are going to be boxing. But I think that this is going to have more impact on the world of MMA than it is on the world of boxing. There's, there's been a, a history of kind of cross-pollination of fight sports, whether you want to go back to Hoist Gracie or Ali took a couple farce fights with a Japanese wrestler uh, late in his career. So, so these types of things have happened, but the UFC is at a very interesting point right now because to a casual fan, there's really only one big name, and it's Conor McGregor. And for Dana White, your one big name is currently tied up in negotiations and has been for the last six, seven months. So this fight needs to happen for the yeah. UFC just to keep Connor's name and Connor's face in everyone's television screens. Because if it doesn't, it's it's a downward spiral for the UFC, or they gotta figure out how to get that light heavyweight or whatever it is, the lightweight belt out of hostage, out of uh, McGregor's hands if he wants to just continue to negotiate and start promoting some other guys, some other names, because it's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a huge UFC fan, but it doesn't seem like the UFC has much steam going right now. No, you know, they've, uh, it, what I think it was UFC 211, whatever was their last main event, or not the main event, their last pay-per-view, and people kept kind of pumping it as, you know, one of the best cards of all time and all that, but I, I'm a casual UFC fan who, I you know, I buy the occasional big-name fight when I see it, I'm not by any means buying every pay-per-view, but I'll, I'll tune in for the big stuff. And I really had no desire to go out and spend however much money it was on that that card, even though it was what they were trying to bill me as the, you know, biggest UFC card of all time. I recognized like two names on the card and had no real desire to go buy it. One one last quick question on this one for you, Matt: Are boxing and MMA competitive sports? Are those competing assets? Yes, I think so because I, I while you have. You can be fans of both. I think if you're a regular, you know, Joe Schmo, who's you know not making all the money in the world, you probably have a entertainment budget that you set out for yourself every week or every year, excuse me. And I don't think I'm able to afford buying you know every single pay per view from the two of them. So I think you know I'm kind of trying to budget out which ones I think are bigger names, which ones are drawing me a little bit more. And if I'm not a diehard fan either way, I'm probably going to end up siding and buying the pay-per-views with the names that I want to see. Yeah. And uh, I just think that there's, a, there's like I said, a lot to be gained here for, uh, for the UFC because um, you got to keep, uh, you got to keep whatever steam you had going. You got to stay relevant. And uh, they really did have that steam going for a while too. They were yeah, getting pretty big. Being in, being in negotiations and having your the, the queen of fighting Ronda Rousey kind of fall to obscurity here it's uh it's been a couple moves in a row that haven't gone the UFC's way so this should be interesting to how it affects both uh, boxing and uh, um, MMA fighting so uh, obviously going to be exciting to watch and hopefully this thing does come to fruition well one thing that did come to fruition last week uh, we go from the excitement of fight sports to the um, mundane activity of watching ping pong balls get pulled like we're uh, like we're doing the lotto here. We're talking NBA draft lottery. I watched zero minutes of it because I knew I could get the news from it on Twitter before it even happened, before it was even broadcast. So, like you said, I can watch it on Twitter. Why do I need to turn on the TV to see Joel Embiid sitting in for the 76ers and ping pong balls floating around when he kind of just knew Boston was going to get that first pick, anyways? 
Yeah. So Boston ends up with the first pick. Lakers at two. Um, Going to be interesting to see if if Lonzo Ball does go at two there to the Lakers, or if he doesn't go there, then obviously there are some LeVar Ball worries, and I think those trickle down, and you do see LeVar Ball slide if he doesn't go at two. Um, to to kind of make this a little Chicago-centric here, some moves can be made, and I know Jimmy has been the name that's been floated at each trade deadline and you know try and maximize what you get for Jimmy. Do you see the Bulls, do you see Gar and Pax, making any aggressive moves here for the one or the two? I mean, I think they're going to try. I just I don't think it's going to be up to them. I think if they could, I think they pull the trigger on that deal right away, but I don't I don't think Boston is going to want it at least doesn't sound like Boston's going to want to do that. It seems like they're pretty pretty cool with taking Markel Fultz at number 1 and if I'm the Bulls, I'm not giving them I'm not giving up anything more than Butler for that pick, I don't think. And and it, it just wouldn't make sense because if you're keeping Rondo and you're keeping Wade why would you trade Jimmy? Because Jimmy, that would be that would be the move towards a rebuild. Because look at these guys that come out one and two in the draft. Look at look at these picks. They're projects. Like you got names like Ben Simmons, who hasn't played a minute of professional basketball yet. Carl um, Anthony Towns, who looks like he's going to be something serious, but was definitely a project to get to this point for a few years. Uh, Anthony Wiggins, and then the year before that, Anthony Bennett. Those were your number one overall picks. So no one in there was a surefire LeBron James, put him on the court and watch him change your franchise type guy right off the bat. These are going to be three to five year projects. And I don't think the Bulls are in the position to take on a project and build around a project. And this, the guy that they're talking about, you know, being the first overall pick, um, his name's escaping me right now. Markel um, Fultz. Markel Fultz. Yeah. He's got a losing record at Washington. We don't even know if this guy can, you know, lead a group of men, let alone be an all-star like Jimmy, an all-pro like Jimmy. So I don't know. I don't know if one and one makes two here. Yeah, and I, I think what the Celtics do might stem, and I think you're going to get to this a little bit later with me, but it kind of stems on what they want to do with Isaiah Thomas. If they see him as you know a guy who's going to be here for a while, who's still got, you know, he's already 28 years old, but still has, you know, three or four years of elite, you know, play left. I think then you do have to go make that move for Jimmy just to kind of complete your team um, and not really take on, like you said, what could be a, a guy in full to pays instant dividends, but also more likely might be a guy who's not ready to go for, you know, not ready to be an elite player for, you know, a year or two. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Isaiah Thomas is 30 and signed in that, what's, I can't see him signing for anything less than a max deal whenever he does sign somewhere. So I think, if you're serious about winning, you're serious about trying to get by LeBron, I think you do go make that move for Jimmy or do anything you can to sign Gordon Hayward in the offseason and then also draft Fultz. Uh, I think, you know, we, we've, been, we've been linking the Bulls and the Celtics here, but it'd be interesting to entertain the two pick as well. If you're high on Alonzo Ball or someone else in this draft, you could really, you know, let's say the Lakers, that, that two pick, want to give you Ingram and and the two-pick for Jimmy, that's another thing that might have to be entertained. Mm-hmm. I think, like you said, the the top picks might be a little bit more of projects, but I think they're also you know, top you know, four or five guys in this draft have the potential to really turn out to be elite talent. So like you said, it doesn't have to just be Boston. It could be two, three, four, maybe even the fifth pick in the draft where you can entertain trading Jimmy and 
also picking up some more future assets and then getting a guy like maybe Malik Monk or Lonzo Ball or uh, De'Aaron Fox, someone like that, to come onto your team and maybe be ready to be an elite player in you know a year or two. It has to be mentioned as well that this is all strategy. This is all posturing by the NBA because they know what their product is. And Adam Silver knows that he has to keep the fans engaged. What other league puts a draft or a draft lottery smack in the middle of their playoffs? No one does that because the product can usually carry itself from day to day, week to week. These NBA playoffs have been so bad that we're sitting here talking about possible moves at the top of a draft that's two, three months away. And we actually finally got a great game last night, though. That was kind of fun to watch, wasn't <laughs> we did, it? We did get a great game last night, but for what? Yeah, it's it, 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 nothing more than what it was. It was one great game, and then Cleveland will probably go back out and win by 30. We got to, we got to see LeBron's sad face. That, that was it. And maybe hey, some of those gifts that came out on Twitter, though, were fantastic. And it's cliche, it's cliche, but to say that perhaps this was the loss that they needed. It, it, it regulated them before going into the series with Golden State, so they kind of got to taste that playoff loss. But uh, I don't know how much I buy into that. No, I don't. I mean, it might wake them up a little bit, but at the same time, they're they're as talented as they are. They know how talented they are. They know that they're just kind of waiting for Golden State, and whether they lose, you know, lose one game in this series or not, I'm not sure they're going to go in with any different approach. Yeah. To Golden State, they've lost to them in the finals before. And Alfred, you know, both the last year they were down what three to one, so they they know how to bounce back from losses against teams like Golden State. That they do, Matt. We're going to keep it in the playoffs here. Different set of playoffs. We're going to jump right into it, and we're going to call this Matt's Minute because uh, hockey, I've been watching, I've still been watching the playoffs, but I'm not as entertained as years past, even when the Hawks were out at this point. You know, there's no Rangers, there's no Red Wings, there's no original six team in there, and Sidney Crosby makes me sick to my stomach, frankly, so (laughs) this has been not the most entertaining last couple weeks for me as a hockey fan. So we're going to give this, we're going to call this Matt's Minute, and you're going to take us through the last week of playoff hockey. Well, um, the, the one series you didn't mention there was out west, which, you know, Nashville and Anaheim, which Nashville now holds a, a 3-2 lead going into game six at home. But that, while you said there aren't, you know, the sexy names in that series, that's that's been a really fun series to watch. Nashville just lost their, their number one centerman, Ryan Johansson, for the rest of the playoffs with a leg injury. But they also after receiving that news, went out and beat Anaheim 3-1 uh, to one in Game 5 to take that seriously. The Ducks lost an important Game 5 at home in a playoff series. Sound the alarm. Um, but on the other side, Pittsburgh kind of just starts, looks like they're starting to figure it out, and they just routed Ottawa 7 to nothing, I believe it was last night. And I'd be, after what we saw of a, of a, of a great first few games from Ottawa, it looked like they were going to put up a fight, and they did for a little while. It looks like Pittsburgh's just going to be able to use their depth and outlast Ottawa, and I think we're going to get a Pittsburgh-Nashville final, and then Pittsburgh probably makes quick work in Nashville if, if Nashville's not playing with uh, arguably their best player in Ryan Johansson, not just their best forward. That was one minute and eight seconds of hockey from the one and only Matt Rooney. Hockey That's pretty good. I didn't even no, time Matt. that. I kept that to write it right about Sorry, a minute. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you caught that sneeze there, but um, I'm allergic to crappy hockey. So that was oh, not. That was not. He's got, got jokes. Him. He's got, got jokes. Him. He's got, got jokes. So, but, but honestly, Matt, we're looking at Pittsburgh and Nashville. 
um, two medium-sized media markets. Um, how compelling is this series to the to the average fan? You know, I, I think the Pittsburgh storyline, whether you like Sidney Crosby or not, I, I think that's going to draw a lot of people in. I think the NHL is is thrilled that you got names like Crosby, Malkin, and Kessel start to yeah hit their stride at this time, and they at least have that storyline going in. But I think to the you know, your average hockey fans are going to tune in for Crosby, but I think you're going to see a pretty lowly rated series. But like last year, when San Jose was in there with Pittsburgh, at least it wasn't a big market, but you still had names like Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe, you know, chasing that elusive first cup. You don't really have much of that with Nashville this year, other than I don't know if you call Pecorine a big name, but um, yeah, and I, I think Nashville being down their best player for I mean, it's he's out for the playoffs. He had I believe his surgery on his leg the the night he got hurt, but you're probably going to see Pittsburgh roll them because while they might be able to you know, sneak by Anaheim, you know, perennial underachievers in the playoffs, they're not going to be able to sneak by Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Phil Kessel in a seven-game series. Matt, I told you that you get a minute to talk hockey. You kept me going. <laughs> I know. I you know, can't egg me on like that. I'll talk I hockey egg, all day. I egg, you on, I egg you on a little bit. And I think that at times, if I could, if I could uh, expound here a little bit, I think at times the – um, disinterest with hockey is a little bit overblown. It might not have, you know, the draw of a football, a baseball, a basketball, but at the same time, they still led Saturday primetime viewing. They did 2.7 million viewers on Saturday, so it's still uh, it's still gaining the eyes. And there are still parts, you know, not to go too broad on this, but you think about the election. When we're talking about temperaments and mentalities. You always go to major metropolises. What is New York saying? What is Chicago saying? What is LA saying? There's a lot of the country that still watches three, five, seven, and nine. And when you get hockey on NBC, there's a lot of people watching it just because it's on NBC. Yeah, I, I would agree with you too. It's 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 there, and you might forget that it's on, but if you see that it's on, it's going to tune in and watch and probably help with you know the Preakness being on before that, and you probably had a lot of people tuning in that just stayed with it. But and, uh, uh, no. We know we know you were tuned into the Preakness. You uh you had a little action on the ponies, Matt. I stayed away from this one, but you, you walked out a winner, huh? Yeah, you know I, I kind of had the race on. You know most of the I think what post time was five forty five. I think I flipped it on around five twenty or so. Just kind of had it on in the background, and you know I saw the horses walking, saw some of the odds, and said, you know what? Why the hell not? Mm-hmm. So I I, you know, I threw twenty on the favorite, uh, always dreaming, and then twenty on on cloud computing, and uh, he was going off at just about twelve to one when I uh, when I placed it down. Won a, won a, not nothing life changing, but a nice little little bump of money there. And, and now cloud computing. What what was your what was your strategy behind this? Give me give me the sharp uh, the sharp angle on cloud computing, or was this just your there was your zero affinity? strategy. This was your affinity for like Steve Jobs. This was an ode to Steve Jobs. Exactly. Like well, I'm recording this on a MacBook. I figured I okay. might as well. No, uh, I, I saw the odds. Um, saw where he was, you know, lined up in the post, and just said well, that that one might be okay. He might win it. And then apparently afterwards, I found out he didn't. I didn't even remember he didn't run in the Kentucky Derby. So I made a very smart pick and, and used the well-rested horse. Oh, you're shrieking right now, man! Yeah. Who do you got? Who do you got in the Belmont? You like any? You like any names in the Belmont? Quite yeah. Well? Why don't I get back to you 15 minutes before post time? Sounds good. That's perfect. Well, Matt, we're going to take this into a new segment. We're going to call this one "Buy or Sell." This is a segment where we're going to make a statement. I'll make a statement, and you have to either buy or sell the statement. You're then going to come back at me with a statement. I'll buy it or sell it, and I'll let you know why. You ready to go? I'm very ready. All right, buy or sell. 
Baseball needs more bench-clearing brawls. We saw it L.A., Miami this past week. Uh, we also saw Toronto get out there and mix it up again. Uh, the L.A. Miami one was was so unbelievable because it was it was one of those unwritten rules that we might not even understand. We'll get into that more. But buy or sell, baseball needs more bench clearing situations. I'm going to go ahead and sell on that. Um, I'm I'm not going to promote fighting in the sport. Not that benches clearing brawls really ever turn into brawls themselves. It kind of just turns into people pushing and shoving on the mound a little bit than walking mm-hmm. back. But I'm all for having fun in baseball. I, I'm, I'm pro bat flip when you need to do it. I'm anti unwritten rules in baseball, but at the same time, I don't, I don't need to see the benches clear and delay the game 15 minutes for people kind of bumping chests. Yeah. If you will. Yeah. But you're going to get that. uh, You're going to get those benches clear. And like you said, it's a lot of jockeying. It's a lot of posture. Nothing ever actually comes from it, except what, when the Sox and Cubs did it. Yeah. To to tangent it a little bit here. Some of those unwritten rules are necessary because they protect, let's say, shortstops trying to turn double plays. But in the situation of L.A. and Miami, this started because uh, L.A. was was up five to nothing and let a batter swing away on three and up. <laughs> like that's a little bit too nuanced of an unwritten rule for me. And I, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna give my input here. I'm buying it. I want more bench clearing situations. But somebody throw a punch. Remember last year with Odor and yep. um, and Landed square on the jaw. That was like that was something. We talked about that for a few days. Yeah. That was um, that was something different in the monotony that can be baseball in May, June, July. I'm w- I, I I can see where you're coming from, and I guess when I said I'm anti unwritten rule, I guess I if you want to break the unwritten rules, fine, but also be prepared to wear a fastball on the back and. Yeah. Walk down to first. Don't get mad when you're Jose Bautista. If you show up, there. I'm not, not even showing up the pitcher, but if you hit a home run, you know, up 3 nothing in the middle of May in a game that doesn't matter and you want to launch your bat like you just hit a walk-off in the ALCS. I support it. I, I, I do too, but be prepared to wear one in the nuts. Yes. That's fine. Yeah. That's, that's how the if game's you, always been. If you do that in the ALCS and you live in the moment and you, you, you toss that bat flip, I'm, I'm not sure you deserve one in the numbers, but if you do that in the middle of May in a game that doesn't matter, you probably going to wear one, and that's okay. And if, and if you're in the ALCS and you come up the next at bat after flipping one to the moon and you wear one of the numbers, that's a base runner in the yeah. ALCS. Exactly. You yeah. just you so, helped your team out. Uh, as it always does, the game kind of uh, it officiates itself, basically. Yeah, exactly. I'm with you. All right. Hit me with one. Buy or sell, Avi Garcia finishes the season hitting over 300. Um... I'm going to sell on that uh, just because, you know, he's come out of the gates hot and he's looking like the player that we expected him to be. He's growing. And uh, what year is Avi in now in the bigs? This is fourth? This is, fourth I think this might be his fourth full season. Fourth full season in the bigs. So this is this is a big season for him. Obviously, guys, it takes some time to feel out the league. But that 300 mark is a serious mark in today's major league. So... I'd love to see him above that 300 mark, but I definitely think that baseball is that game of averages, and we're going to see everyone kind of regress to the mean here, especially when you start putting the brakes on and maybe you lose a Quintana and maybe the clubhouse isn't as hunky-dory as it is right now. It tunes out a little bit. We, we see a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of a cool-off by everyone, Avi included. Okay, I like it. No rebut. You're good there. No, I you know I I wouldn't be shocked if he he finishes over 300 just because he said that. 
that yeah. high start. He's already what, like three forty something like that. But yeah, he almost he, he's going to have to be pretty bad. Yeah, to, gonna, to finish. There's got to be a, there's going to be a summer slump in there somewhere. There I will be forecasting. I think he's going to finish right around there, whether it's a point or two above, a point or two below. I'm not sure, but I, I think he's going to be right around there. All right. Well, we touched on this a little earlier, but my second buy or sell for you. Garin Pax go all in for Markel Fultz. They trade Jimmy for the number one pick, but you're getting Jay Crowder as well. Do you buy or sell? I'll buy. Um, Jay Crowder is a. I'll, I'll buy that. Uh, Bulls need to go out and, and shake things up and get that future potential superstar. You bring back a guy like Jay Crowder who's on still what I think he's got two more years of a pretty team friendly deal where you're not paying him too much and you're at the point where. Don't really. If you're making that deal, you don't really care if you win right now. So sure, I'll, I'll take on Jay Crowder's contract. I'll take him on and move Butler and start ushering in what I hope is the new era of the Bulls. But I'm not confident. All right. Well, I I'd have to sell on that just because it, it's not congruent with the whole Wade Rondo narrative. Okay, you can spin it and say we got a couple veterans that are going to teach this young guy what the league's all about and. You could take that. That's for the birds. I, I think that you're working in two different directions if you're keeping those two guys and selling Jimmy. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, Matt. Well, we. I think it's. No, I, I got. I got. I got one more for you. You go, Oh, you got this one is, more. For this me. is. This okay. is. This one. You like this one? I think. I, Grant, I know what your, your your real answer is. I'm not sure what you're gonna what you're gonna say on the air here on the hey, record. I keep it. I keep it real on here. Buy or sell. The male romper. Buy or sell the male romper. The mom. You know, I've had a lot of time to think about this one. I already know and your answer. You better answer it honestly. I'm selling the male romper. Don't lie I'm to me, Joe. I'm, gonna, I'm not lying to you. I'm going to tell you why I'm selling the male romper. It's important, for me at least, to be on the front end of a trend. The male, <laughs> the male romper exploded so fast that if you're buying a male romper, you're literally just following an Instagram post. You're a sheep in a herd, and you're going to look like an idiot in a romper. Now, if Cam Newton is the one that comes out clean in this one, he wore a romper, long sleeve to Coachella before anyone had seen that. The last time they had seen that was that James Bond picture of Sean Connery by the pool. That was the last time anyone saw the male romper. So kudos to Cam Newton in this situation, but everyone else just biting the style, it's not a good look. I compared the male romper to the fedora. That's how it's going to be kind of held in that esteem. Maybe you get one per group, one male romper per group, but you still look like an idiot. Like, the fedora is a great idea until it's on your head. The male romper, okay. You get one a group, you still look like an idiot. I'm selling the male romper and I really want it to go away because of the traction it took so quickly. Man, I can just see you though standing outside, you know, at an you know outdoor summer party. Yes, beer. I think you can pull it. I can't pull it off. I think you. Can I could pull my own romper off, but that doesn't mean you're going to see me in a one piece. Okay, I don't. I don't support the male romper. I don't condone the male romper. And like I said, it exploded too fast for me. It's a fad that I don't want any part of. Well, it might become vintage by the end of the summer, and then it becomes cool to get back into it. No. See, if, it's that, <laughs> if, it's, if it's that quick cyclically, too, the male robber needs to be taken out of the fashion lexicon, Matt. Okay? okay. Uh, you know, you're the fashion guy. I'm not a big, like I said, I think it was the first episode, not a big clothes guy. I am This is your expertise. I'm a resident fashion analyst, and, and my years of experience in this one tell me sell the male romper 
And if you need to come and talk to me because you have a male romper in your hand and you're standing there thinking you should buy one, just call me. I will talk you off the ledge. Don't subject yourself to the male romper. All right. I may have to give you a separate phone call after this then talk to you. Do you have one? I feel like you have one in a cart somewhere online. No. No. Who would know? I think it might be a decent look for you, Matt. But, uh, you know, it's been a good week, male rompers aside. Uh, not too many grievances. I got a small one. Anything on your end, Matt? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clean this week, so let's, uh, let's, let's, let's turn the airing grievances over to you. Yeah, hit the music. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. No? You're going to hear about it. You can't handle the truth. Boy, have you lost your mind? I'll help you find it. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. All right, I got a grievance, Matt. It's a small one, but um, it's something that I'm going to blow up. Because uh, as a golf fan, as a tour fan, like you and myself are, and like some of our listeners are, the conversation comes up at least once or twice a year when these guys are bombing the ball 350 yards that they're marginalizing the game, that, that the game can only be played by these guys who hit it 330 and longer, and they're calling for the technology be, to be drawn back. I refute that because we saw a video this week of Dustin Johnson hitting a woodhead persimmon driver carrying it 310 yards. This isn't a case of technology and the same human beings. This is an increase in technology and the increase, the evolution of the athlete. You see it in every sport. Football players are faster. Hockey players skate faster. They have better shots. The games are more nuanced these days because of the athlete. Yes, the baseball has changed. It's not a, it's, it's wound different than it used to be. The golf ball has changed. It's not a balada ball anymore. And these technological advancements have made the games greater, but I don't think that they're that they should get all of the credit for just this explosion in distance on the PGA Tour. From 1980 to 1933, the average driving distance on the PGA Tour was 260 yards. By 2003, it was 287 yards. In that gap, a number of things happened. Titanium shafts went the way of graphite shafts were introduced. Larger heads on drivers were introduced. And a guy named Tiger Woods was introduced. (laughs) I argue that the latter was the most pivotal change in golf. It encouraged athletes to play the game. It's why a 6'5 Dustin Johnson can hit the ball 350 yards. That is a freak athlete with premium technology in his hands. I don't think a change needs to be made. I think that ball regulation is something that's very important, but the game is more fun this way. Guys are crushing the ball, and yes, it does reduce some courses to wedges, but if your argument is that you can't play these courses, you can. Tee it forward. You don't have to tip it out when you're at TPC Sawgrass, Matt. Play the white tees and enjoy yourself. Enjoy the same course that Tiger Woods and Dustin Johnson and Jason Day all get to play at the same time. Don't tell me that technology in golf needs to be drawn back. Technology in golf makes the game more accessible. Variability in scoring hasn't changed from 1980 to 2003 to 2017. Guys still shoot 10 under par just like they used to. The technology is different. The courses are different. The athletes, most of all, Matt, are different. That's my grievance today. Well said. 
Well said. I don't I don't have too much to add to it. Yeah, I just think that it's a fun game, and it's it's more accessible now. It's more fun for the average golfer because I can swing a tailor-made M2 and hit it 300 yards. Now that if you put that same persimmon driver in my hands that Dustin Johnson hits, I might not be might not be poking it out there to 280 or yeah. 30 yards less than whatever Dustin's hitting or 50 yards less than whatever Dustin's hitting. It might be a little bigger disparity in talent at that point, but that's what makes this game fun. You put that club in both of our hands and it gives both of us a chance. You poking it out there 300 these days, Joe? I can, I can, you know, yeah. when I, when I really uncoil on one, we get her out, we get her out to about 300, 310. Okay. Catch one downwind, a little, little bit downhill. Yeah. You know, it's been, it's been fun. And like I said, that's largely in part to having a fresh driver with some clean pop in it in my bag. So All I right. think that, I think that that technology definitely is a good thing for the game. The ball, it it, on it the helps other the hand, common regular golfer. It does. It does. And you're not going to let, you're not going to force your tour players to play a lesser technology than your everyday player. It's why they don't play 16 inch softball at Wrigley Field. Okay. There's, there's options on a golf course for me to play these same courses. And that's another thing that makes the game beautiful. It's, it's the same ball, the same club, the same course. And you get to see how much worse you are than that guy. I'm with you. I, I'm with you 110%. You with me on that one, Matt? Yeah. I appreciate it. That's it's a good my grievance. One small, that's my one small grievance. Love how you turned a you turned a very small grievance in there too. About a normal grievance airing time. Normal normal size grievance. Yeah. Normal size grievance. Turned into <laughs> a normal size grievance. Well, well, I'm glad I I'm glad I could uh, you know blow that one up for us, Matt. Let's uh, let's hit the mailbag. Let's do it. Uh, I will open up the Twitter page now. All right, first question. Joe, what is the favorite? Let's go. We're, we're going to combine these two because they're they're related. And I liked them. Okay, and this favorite, comes from one of our from, uh at fifty seven Big Bear on Twitter. Okay. He asks, "What are your your favorite and your most heartbreaking Chicago sports moments you've ever witnessed live?" Ooh, live sports moments in Chicago, and I think you're probably going to pull the trump card on me here, Matt. So I will. I'll, I'm I'll sorry. First. Um, I got a couple good ones. Can I give you two good, one bad? Yeah. I'm going to uh, give you two bad, one good. Okay. That'll that'll even things out here. Um, both of my Oh god, I kind of got three good. Never mind. We'll go we'll go one we'll go two good, one bad. One of my top moments, just the experience overall, um, was game 5 Nashville Predators Blackhawks yep. 2010 first Stanley Cup run, the comeback game, Hosa coming out of the box, scoring the game winner after taking I believe was it it was a the five minute double, major yeah. double minor it was a major it was a five, five minute, minute major, major. Yeah. they kill off the penalties Kaner scores with I think it was three seconds left or something in regulation and then they kill the penalty comes out of the box score to win that moment at the United Center with some of my most dear friends it was it was unbelievable we were up in standing room only we jumped in a car from down in Bloomington at Wesley and drove up with a couple group of guys. Um, we were there with our boy Andrew Wisher. It's just a memory that I'll always have that that Game Five moment, and uh, was one of the coolest, loudest scenes that I've ever been a part of. I actually have, if you're if you've ever been up in the 300 section in the oh, yeah. uh, in, in the standing room only, it's drop ceiling, so it's kind of those styrofoam ceilings, and they're not that high. I have a piece of one of the drop ceilings that was destroyed by a uh, by a celebrating fan so everyone kind of made out of there with a little piece of uh, a little piece of history fun fact about that game 
You were was, sitting on the glass. No, I wasn't. I was actually also, <laughs> I was up in the standing rooms too, but I was uh, walking out of the United Center, kind of down those stairs to the main doors. Yes, I, I was walking with you. I made an appearance in the Blackhawks Stanley Cup DVD. I, I, and I, who, I, and I'm who in there. pointed that out to you, Matt? Actually, I think it was, was it, was it you? I pointed that out to you. I remember I bought that Stanley Cup. It season, was you. It was you. And I watched it sitting on the ground like a 10-year-old when I had gotten that CD. And I was like, is that Matt? Gave an and epic fist you, pump. You fist pump it in the background. Mm-hmm. So you're a, part of, uh, you're a part of that first championship just as much as anyone else. Matt. Still waiting on my ring. Still waiting on that ring. Well, yeah. well hopefully we'll get you a, a couple more here. <laughs> um, second, and it has to be mentioned, non-championship, non-playoff moment, but it's – Tattoo the Bears on my heart. It is my moment as a Bears fan. Um, 2001 versus the 49ers. Bears trailing by 15 with four minutes left. They come all the way back. I believe it was Jimmy Matthews hit David Terrell for two touchdowns to tie it up. First play of overtime. Brian Urlacher lays out Terrell Owens. Pick six. Mike Brown hits him in the chest. He takes it back for the walk-off winner, only to do it again the next week in Cleveland. And I was at that 49ers game with my dad, and it's just one of those moments that stands out. That that was kind of when I first understood what it meant to be a Bears fan and how it felt to be a Bears fan. Old Soldier Field, it was something amazing. And I'll also never forget, a man in the row behind us, everyone's jumping, screaming, you're hugging strangers. We've all been in those awesome moments in stadiums. A guy falls over from the row behind us into our row, lands, clearly breaks his finger. We're talking sideways finger, looks at it, looks back at everyone else, and just keeps screaming and cheering. It didn't phase him in the least bit. This man had a compound fractured finger, and just that walk-off winner by Mike Brown is forever, like I said, tattooed on my heart, made me embarrassed. Bear down. Right. Bear down, Bear down, Chicago Bears. How about what's the? You want me to go with my good, or do you want to go with your heartbreaker? Uh, my heartbreaker. I'll, I'll keep it short, just because I don't want to relive it. And it was uh, also also told me what it was to be a Bears fan. It was the final game in the old Soldier Field. I was sitting in the first row of the end zone. Um, Philadelphia Eagles put a number up on the Bears. I don't oh, even remember what the final that. was, but it was it was no contest from start to finish. And I just remember sitting there. For, for the entire game, for the entire 60, and just uh, just being heartbroken. So that was that was probably my lowest live moment. Because another kind of uh, footnote to that one, they started tearing out the seats of the old Soldier Field while we were still in the stadium. We were oh, God. Out, and we kind of sat there, and we were taking our time getting out of there, and the construction crews came in as fans were leaving and started tearing the seats out. So that was kind of like a... Uh, that insult a injury of, a little bit. A little bit of a jarring moment, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll transition to mine here. The best moment I've ever seen live, I do have to, before I get into it, I have to thank my brother Tim because I got to go to the game because of him. Uh, he is also a Blackhawks season ticket holder like my dad. Um, and he got married, I think it was June 16th or so, so it, was, it would have been his two or three three-year anniversary. He had a trip planned with his wife that crossed over the date when the Hawks were hosting Game 6 of the 2015 Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, he, he could not cancel the foreign trip to go to the Blackhawks game. His wife was not going to allow that. So instead of selling the ticket, making a killing on it on StubHub, he gave it to his favorite little brother and uh, let me go witness the Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup in, in front of my own eyes on the United Center Ice. And I think that's a moment that, as long as I live, I don't think any sports moment will top that, seeing 
not only you know your your favorite team, but probably favorite team in all of sports, reached that crowning achievement after so many years inside that stadium of just hopelessness throughout you know the the early two thousands of never thinking I'd really ever get to see that. Um, that was the loudest I've ever been. I've ever heard the United Center. I've heard that place loud a lot. Been there quite a few times, luckily. And when when Patrick Kane scored that goal to make it two nothing from Brad Richards, I think. I don't think I've ever heard a louder, not stadium environment in my life. Um, it just, it was absolutely electric and it was kind of, kind of made the Blackhawks come full circle for me and kind of, I am now able to say as much as I hope they go on and win as many Stanley Cups in the future as they've already won. But if they, if I don't see them win another one, I'm, you know, I can't complain anymore. That's, die happy man. I, I could die happy. And I've seen a lot of great ones. I just, I don't think that, moment for me in sports can ever be topped i don't i don't um, think it should be top either Matt. that that's definitely a special one as far as as heartbreakers uh i got two like i said one comes from that same same stadium uh i was sitting in section 234 row eight seat 10 <laughs> alec martinez is a blast from the point ricocheted oh. off nick letty's jersey by Corey crawford um Thanks. I remember sitting right next to my brother, Mike, and neither of us, it was one of those where it wasn't going to be goalie interference, it wasn't going to be overturned, nothing like that, so you kind of just sat there, you know, it was over, and I, I can still remember hearing the audible, like, I could make out what the Kings players were saying to each other on the ice, that's uh, how quiet it was in there, you can hear the audible screams from the bench, all that crap, and it just I was it happened. Just, it happened so quickly in, in the it, game. Of it did, and that game, I mean, that, was, that one was tough, because the, the Kings went on to play a not very formidable formidable opponent in the Rangers in the cup final. So while anything in hockey can happen, that was kind of one where if the Hawks, that, that Western Conference final was more so the Stanley Cup. It looked like it was the championship. Yeah, yeah and that was that would have given the Hawks their repeat if they would have gone on and won. And they, that was, they had two separate two-goal leads in that game. You kind of felt it coming. They had come down from, back from down 3-1 in the series. It's forced game seven. Must you drag us back through it, Matt? Yeah, I'm really. It's it's good. It's good to vent. I stand tight. It's good to vent. I'm sorry. You know, it, it helps with the process. It's still a still a healing process. Still grieving. Still grieving. The other one I'm still grieving, and I'm not sure I'll ever get over was uh, 2005 Notre Dame Stadium, fourth and nine. Notre Dame had the lead over USC, Ugh. and Matt Weiner just. It had to be a centimeter over Mike Richardson's finger that he completed that pass to Dwayne Jarrett. And uh, SC took it down. If you would have seen scores there, don't tackle him. If he scores there, give me Brady Quinn with the ball with a minute and a half left and two timeouts. Give me that. I'll take that. But we had to hawk Dwayne Jarrett. Reggie Bush had to cheat, push Matt Leinart into the end zone. and I can still see that. Because I remember turning – it was also with my brother Mike for that one, so maybe Mike and I should stop going to games together. Um (laughs) <laughs> Looked at Mike after it was third and twenty. They got to, you know, fourth and eleven, fourth and nine, whatever the hell it was. And I kind of turned to Mike. I was like, "We're going to end the streak. We're going to beat USC because USC was on that." What, so it's 40 your fault. So, I'm, I'm not going to take the blame, but it might have been my fault. Irish Nation, you know who to come to here. It was Matt Rooney's fault. The bush push. The blood is on your hands, man. Yeah, fair enough. I just that one. That one will forever stink. Well, we've seen a lot of good ones. A lot of sad ones, and, and we're still young men, Matt. They're going to continue to rip our heart out and make us feel like a million bucks. There you go. That's all, all you right, can well, ask for with sports. Matt, are you got anything else for the people? If not, I'm going to shut us down here. No, I'm, I'm good, Joe. You, uh, 
you take this. It's been fun talking to you this week, it, despite all the uh, the hangups we might have had through this podcast. Kept had a couple technical difficulties along the way, but we're glad that we could still bring you the product. Thanks again for listening to the Moose and Roots podcast. We're going to continue to bring you some premium content that's uh, that's quoted from Matt Rooney. Matt, Matt, quote, I'm quoting you. That's premium content. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to keep bringing you that every week. Thank you for listening. Be sure to like us, follow us, do all that, Instagram, Twitter, SoundCloud. We're just a couple of SoundCloud rappers right now. Like Matt said, we're going to try and get on uh, iTunes here uh, in, the, in the near future. Hope so, to have this episode up there, if not next week's for sure. Perfect, perfect. So we will definitely be shooting out those links. And uh, thanks for the support as always, everyone. I'm going to shut us down here. Shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it all down. Shut it down. Shut it down! Houston, we have shut down. I've seen enough. Shut it down. All right, I'm going to try and keep this quick here, but uh, it definitely needs to be talked about. We're looking at a series that we knew was coming. Cavaliers, Warriors. It, it promises to be an outstanding uh, matchup between the league's two best teams. And when you're talking about championships, that's what you want. And that's what the NBA is now. The NBA has been reduced to two super teams and we're going to continue to see those teams square off in the finals and, and it's fun but at the same time uh, the product is lacking in the NBA so uh, I'm going to shut us down by asking Commissioner Silver and by asking all of the league commissioners to stop telling us that the fans are important because the fans aren't important they're an afterthought they're a note under history what's important is the monetization of the leagues. Making sure your owners get their money, making sure everybody makes their nut, and making sure you have happy owners. And I understand that it's a business, and it's magnified by the situation that we have in the NBA right now. Yes, the Cavaliers did lose yesterday, but they'll probably go on to win it in five games. Then, we have a seven-day layoff until the NBA Finals. For those seven days, Pundits, shock jocks, everyone will take their chance. Everyone will make their hot take. They'll talk about it and will be sick about it by day three. Then Draymond Green will say something, get everyone riled up. That'll carry us to day five. But it's going to seem like an eternity. Seven days in sports time is an eternity. The NBA is going to do what it has to do for its business, for its product, not for its fans. The fans will continue to come because look at it. We're looking at the same matchup for the third straight year, and we're just as excited as we were last year and the year before that. It's going to be great, but the lead-up has been anything but. It's been undeniably underwhelming. Aside from the Washington-Boston series that got a little exciting at the end, there's been absolutely nothing. Last night's Boston win was a fluke. It's going to be these two teams. We're going to watch it, and it's going to be great. But it's not about us. It's not about the fans. It's about the league. And it's about Adam Silver making sure that his owners are happy and that the bottom line adds up. That has nothing to do with us, the fans. That's my shutter down for the week. Always a pleasure talking with you. Moose and Roots podcast in the books. We out. See ya. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. <laughs>